3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers, and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respects to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognize their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis, and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. It's 7 a.m., and today is Tuesday, the 18th of July. My name is Fong, and in the studio today, we've got Carnegie and Ivka. Good morning. Good morning. Morning. How was your weekend, everyone? Uh, it was good. It was um, relaxed for once, which was nice. Um, and yesterday was really nice sunshine. I was living. I cleaned out my whole backyard. I did some raking. Wow. <laughs> yeah. It was so nice. <laughs> that sounds so productive. It was such a nice... I love those days where yeah. it's cold, but blue skies, it's clear, it's sunny. Yeah. You get to do your raking, get to tidy up your backyard. Yeah. <laughs> was your weekend as productive, Ivka? Uh, yeah, my weekend was great. On Friday night, I went to a collage workshop. Ooh. How was that? It was, it was really fun. Collaging is so fun. It was really fun, very meditative, and it was, uh, two people ran the workshop and they sort of took you through it in stages and were very, uh, encouraging to kind of lean into the process and not get too stuck on what the end result will be because that is something that often stops me participating in craftenoons and whatnot. But they have a scanner that they flip upside down, down to scan your image so you can play with it as you go. You don't have to stick it down so you can continue oh, to that change is it. ideal. That's so good. Develop it, start again. So, yeah, all of that pressure of wanting this perfect final product was not there. So, yeah, I really enjoyed it. Nice, wholesome Friday night activity. Yeah. That sounds so nice. I feel like, yeah, having to stick, glue something down and and just be content with that Especially would be with so stressful. Especially glue stick. I was, we had to make name tags for... Um, you know, your group to start with as a little icebreaker, I suppose. And I was using a glue stick, which I don't think I've used since like 2006. <laughs> and they are not useful when you've got little bits of like a little A that you've cut out. No. And it's getting all yeah. around the edges and yeah. yeah, stressful. Definitely takes me back to primary school. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> glue everywhere. <laughs> okay, let's have a chat about what's coming up on today's show. So this morning, we're going to start by speaking with the Vice President for Professional Staff from the NTEU at Victoria University, Fleur Taylor, who will be talking to us about what's going on at VU after their announcement um, a couple of weeks ago about 300 full-time uh, redundancies. Afterwards, we're going to revisit... Um, the Climate Action Show, where Vivian spoke with Neeb, who abseiled off a bridge in Melbourne uh, during a nationwide action in the first week of July 2023. We'll then be joined by Laura Riccardi from Women's Health in the South East to talk about the Therapeutic Goods Administration recent amendment to the prescribing and dispensing restrictions on medical abortion, which will significantly increase access to abortion. 
And then at 8 o'clock, we'll be speaking with Professor Jane Fisher from Monash University about a new study that examines the health, mental health impacts of COVID-19-related stresses on women of refugee backgrounds. And to end our show today, we're going to play for you some of our favourite tracks by non-binary musicians. Um, this is to celebrate International Non-Binary People's Day, which was on Friday the 14th of July. We'll be back with the news headlines right after this. Focus on Myanmar, art, music and resistance. Join Past the Mic Media at Black Spark on Wednesday the 26th of July for a presentation about art, music and resistance since the February 2021 military coup of Myanmar. Featuring a statement and music from Chaw Chaw and Myanmar punk band The Rebel Riot, the photography of 2023 World Press Photo Award winner Mao Kam Wah, and a presentation and Q&A with Myanmar photographer Mako Nang. Tickets are on a sliding scale via Humanitix. As always, no one turned away. More details are available on the Black Spark event page. Focus on Myanmar, art, music and resistance. 5.30pm, Wednesday the 26th of July at Black Spark. Hosted by Past the Mic Media, a 3CR supporter. You're listening to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast on 855am or maybe you're streaming online at 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming. Here are our news headlines for today, Tuesday the 18th of July. Scorching weather is currently gripping three continents, whipping up wildfires and threatening to topple temperature records. Predictions of historic heat hung over parts of Asia, Europe and the US on Sunday. In Japan, authorities issued heat stroke alerts to tens of millions of people in 20 of its 47 prefectures as near record high temperatures scorched large areas and torrential rain pummeled other regions. Their national broadcaster, NHK, warned the heat was life threatening, with the capital and other places recording temperatures of nearly 40 degrees Celsius. The U.S. National Weather Service reported that a powerful heat wave stretching from California to Texas was expected to peak during an extremely hot and dangerous weekend. Southern California is fighting <clears throat> numerous wildfires, including one in Riverside County that has burned more than 3,000 hectares and prompted evacuation orders. Further north, the Canadian government said wildfires had burned a record-breaking 10 million hectares this year, with more damage expected as the summer drags on. In Europe, Italians were warned to prepare for, quote, the most intense heatwave of the summer and also one of the most intense of all time. Predictions of historic high temperatures in the coming days led the health ministry to sound a red alert for 16 cities, including Rome, Bologna and Florence. Back in Victoria, the police commissioner, Shane Patton, has called for an increase in police powers to enable officers to arrest children aged between 10 and 13. Commissioner Patton said the force should be able to arrest children as young as 10 when the age of criminal responsibility is lifted to 14 in 2027. In April, the Victorian government voted to lift the criminal age of responsibility from 10 to 12, with a second rise due to take place in 2027. The pace of reform has been criticised by medical authorities, legal experts and Indigenous organisations who say that the age should be raised to 14 immediately. 
In April, Youth Affairs Council Victoria Chief Executive Catherine Ellis said that, quote, instead of locking up children and young people, it is far better better to invest resources into services which improve health and community outcomes for these children. She said, all the evidence and human rights standards clearly recommend a minimum of 14 years without exceptions to ensure better outcomes for the children and their communities now and for the long term. Uh, Now for news in Tasmania. Um, Tasmania has become the first state to officially recognise those who identify as asexual, adding the A to LGBTIQ+. In Australia, the initialism LGBTIQ plus is in official use. It doesn't have an A, which until now has been grouped under the plus. The A represents asexual um, as well as agender. In Tasmania, the official initialism in government documents has now been expanded to LGBTIQA plus and, and that it's the first state to provide this level of recognition. Equality Tasmania spokesperson Lucy Mercer-Mapstone said it was pleasing to see the government continue to be fully open about recognising the diverse communities living in the state. Um, with, quote, asexual, agender and aromantic people have gone invisible for too long in our community. And finally, there are two community events coming up that we'd like to speak about. First of all, um, this Thursday, the 20th of July at 12pm, outside Parliament Steps, <clears throat> there'll be a rally to save Barrack Beacon. Um, so uh, if you would like to support, please head down to the Parliament House Steps on Thursday, 20th of July at midday. The rally will be followed by a walk to um, 50 Lonsdale Street to deliver a message to the Minister for Housing, Colin Brooks. Also coming up on the 22nd of July, which is this Saturday, there'll be a rally outside the State Library of Victoria at 2pm. Um, it's called 10 Years to Bloody Long Permanent Visas for All Now, um, so supporting refugees and asylum seekers. Um, speakers include Wurundjeri Elder Uncle Ringo Terrick, uh, Fahad Bandesh, um, Senator Jane, Janet Rice and more. So that is happening on the 22nd of July, which is this Saturday outside the State Library at 2pm. Um, those are our news headlines for this week. Uh, we're going to go to a track now. This <clears throat> Sorry, excuse me. This song is Lose My Head by Alice Phoebe Lou off her latest release, Shelter.
Kafiyas are Palestinian scarves and they're a symbol of support for justice for the Palestinian people. Buying one will support the last remaining factory in Hebron that makes kafiyas and all proceeds from the sales support projects in Palestine, especially Gaza, as well as local solidarity organisations. From the traditional black and white kafiyah to an array of modern designs, explore the range and order online or drop by 3CR during business hours. Wear your support for the rights of Palestinians. Go to kafiyas.org.au. That's K-U-F-I-Y-A-S.org.au. A 3CR supporter. When I was new to Melbourne, I found a Food Not Bombs flyer on the road and I had like this fist with a carrot and carrots are my favorite vegetable. Yeah, I think they were asking for help doing stuff and I got in touch. We, I guess, rescue food. That would otherwise go to waste. I like the aspect of sharing food and um, not making anyone feel obligated to pay anything for it. We make a real point at Food Not Bombs of involving everyone who wants to be involved in whichever part they want to be involved in. For more information, go to fnbmelb.noblogs.org. Food Not Bombs is a 3CR supporter. You're listening to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. Before those announcements, you heard Lose My Head by Alice Phoebe Lou. We spoke last week briefly about the fact that Victoria University has recently announced that they will be making 300 uh, full-time workers redundant as a part of yet another restructure. Flair Taylor is a professional staff member and vice president of VU's NTEU branch. She is joining us this morning to talk about the announcement and what it means for VU staff. Welcome back to Tuesday Breakfast, Flair. Hi, can I get how are you? I'm very well, how are you? I'm not too bad. Um, it's nice to speak to you this early in the morning. Um, as I was just saying, so we've been talking about the fact that, uh, you know, VU is calling for about 300 redundancies uh, for, at the end of last month, which has been calculated to be approximately 16% of the workforce. Um, you know, can you tell us about this and how did management justify this decision when they announced it, you know, to staff? Yeah, well... Um 
As, just as a bit of background, um, it's enterprise bargaining season um, at Victoria University. Our agreement expired last year. And, you know, the university has really been sort of taking their time coming to the table in terms of, of bargaining. And um, out of the blue, suddenly a budget black hole of enormous proportions was um, discovered and sort of warned about just before we hit the bargaining table. And so we're told that to... Um, to deal with this, you know, 40 million or 70 million, you know, changes depending on who you talk to, black hole in the budget, um, that VU has to cut 300 staff members, 300 full-time continuing staff members. And they're also looking at, um, you know, ending people's six-term contracts sooner than before. Um, and so uh, the figure of 16% of staff that you mentioned probably is a percentage across the whole university. Um, according to VU's published annual report figures, um, 300 ongoing positions is is 23% of the of the permanent workforce at VU. So it's a savage and brutal attack on on staffing at VU. Yeah, that's absolutely massive. Uh, I should note that I'm also a member of VU's NTEU branch, and so um, you know, I have been affected by a lot of these changes at VU in the past as well. Um, you know, did management specify? if there will be any forced redundancies, if they don't get enough voluntary redundancies, because that's another whole kettle of fish as well. Well, they're being really cagey about that. Basically, the 300 figure is a kind of a full-time equivalent figure that they're basically saying that, well, well, we hope that we... Um, you know, get up to three, you know, the number that we need, you know, in terms of the, the people that, that um, you know, put their hand up to um, be made redundant and, and, and so forth. But I think, you know, what's most sickening about it is that the last meeting that we had with management about this, you know, seeking assurances and commitments from the university that they were not going to, you know, replace um, continuing staff with sessional staff and contract staff and so forth. They refused to make any of those commitments but they did sort of prance in gloating about the fact that the, the you know, information site where people could check their entitlements um, and, you know, look, and look at the documents they'd prepared about putting in an expression of interest had received, you know, hundreds of hits and, you know, like they were so excited about the fact that, that people are so ground down and, and disgusted at working for this institution that, they, that, that in this economy, in this climate, you know, they would actually seriously go and check out the the redundancy site and see if it was worth their while. I mean, I think that tells its own story. And I think what is just so sickening about it is that, you know, we've seen a new management come in to VU after after the, the last Vice-Chancellor departed. And, you know, they talked different. They talked, you know, it's all about progressive inclusivity and being a thriving place to work and study and, you know, um, protecting country and all of these kinds of lovely values and, you know, being a University of the West, and I mean, I think is this is this the business model? Is this the corporate challenge that VU puts out to the West of Melbourne as a way to do business? You know, to um, to sack staff, to you know, to to put further pressure on the on the studying conditions and the and the education that um, students in in the West of Melbourne get by sacking hundreds and hundreds of staff after the last restructure and round of redundancies that happened um, in at Victoria University, you know, through COVID, like staff have been at breaking point ever since. 
there's a culture, you know, there's, there's, there's a rising number of work cover claims, um, you know, claims to the Human Rights Commission and so forth about the treatment of staff. Um, and, you know, instead of sitting down with, with staff to kind of find creative ways to sort of plan workplaces and, and deal with workloads, um, instead, we've got the same old management bullshit. Keep people in the dark, not not tell us, you know, what courses that they're planning to close. Try and, you know, make it sound as though it's everybody's choice to take a redundancy and leave the working conditions for people who are left behind, like, in the gutter. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the last time you were on the show, uh, it was around the time that this same management uh, merged VU's colleges uh and it was a similar situation where there was lack of transparency, uh, almost no consultation. And in fact, the only quote unquote consultation that went on was how to name the new colleges rather than, uh, you know, whether anyone wanted the merger or how best to do it. Um, you know, can you tell us a bit about the lack of consultation in this huge uh, change as well? Well, yeah, I mean, like, how do you cut 23% of the ongoing workforce? And maintain the university as it's going. Like it's 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 barely running. It's falling over. There are so as in my role as representing professional staff, I'm contacted on an almost daily basis by staff who are so close to breaking point. You know that that they that they're desperate. You know they they feel that they can't take leave. You know that's not worth taking leave because. Um, you know, that there's nobody to replace them and when they come back, the mountain of work is going to be even greater than that. So, you know, like it's 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 beyond belief that the university cannot be sort of planning to, you know, radically change the offering that it has or, you know, close departments, close programs or, you know, discontinue things. Um, but every time we try and press them to more detail about, you know, what they have in mind, they're like, oh, no, no, we just want to see what comes out and, you know, like just, just see, you know, how many people want to put their hands up to, to, leave, to leave the workplace. And so... You know, the announcement of these 300 redundancies came out of the blue. There was no consultation. There was no um, warning. There was no, um, you know, the, the, it, it's it's almost like the, the tone of um, the communications that you get from management has become crazier and crazier, <laughs> like full of this stuff about, like, together for one VU, you know, it's almost <laughs> like... Orwellian in nature, you know, like the way that, 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 you know, people just start using these slogans and kind of like catchphrases and things like that. And, yeah, so, I mean, consultation, I, I'm not even sure how, oh, I, I mean, how important consultation is. It's more that there's just no, there's no warning and there's, there's, there's no... There's no discussion of reality. There's no facing up to the fact that, you know, there has been management blunders. There has been, you know, overpayment of... Um, there's been a... There's, there's a human resources automated system that they spent millions of dollars on and which has never worked from mm -hmm. day one. It's been going for like a year and they still haven't fixed the problems in it. And they have had, you know, hundreds of dollar a day consultants working every single day on this for a year to try and fix the thing that they spent multiple millions of dollars on implementing, you know, to replace a system that wasn't even broken in the first place. I mean, this is the kind of thing that they're spending money on and the staff who actually teach students and who give students that experience um, of being at university 
uh, are once again targeted for renewal as though we're just like disposable cogs in a machine. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the whole shift from, you know, being the University of the West and um, serving the people that, you know, people who are the first to go to university and their family and people from migrant and refugee backgrounds to just this kind of PR-focused, you know, empty words, um, top-heavy management vibes has been, it's been a huge change in my time there as well. Um, You know, and in addition to the use of consultants, they're also uh, uh, outsourcing the service centre to to another company so that we can then subcontract, VU can subcontract the workers for about 30% less pay as well. So, I mean, it's, it's these kinds of corporate tactics and, you know, the use of... Uh, it's really interesting to read all the scandals about, you know, the big accounting firms like PricewaterhouseCoopers and so forth because, you know, like Deloitte is a name that you don't spend much time at VU before you hear. Like, they, they, Deloitte is called in to consult on every little thing under the sun and, you know, we know what the priorities of these big four accounting firms are and how much Mm. they charge. Again, this is, you know... So VU has tried to say that this 300... Stacking of 300 staff or, you know, calling for redundancies of 300 ongoing staff is not a major change under the terms of our agreement. Um, And so um, the NCEU has served a notice and it's likely that this situation is going to end up in the Commission at, at some point because... Clearly, the union is saying that you know this constitutes a major change. This is this is a, a huge cut to the workforce, and how can it not um, um, be classed as a major change? I mean, if this isn't major change, what is? <laughs> That's right, and you know uh, the importance of that, I guess, is that you know that that while the protections that we have in our current EA aren't as strong as they should be, um, it does mean that there is you know further time and the university has to make further, you know, present further information about it and so forth. So I guess we kind of see that as a, you know, at one tactic of things that we can do to try and, um, you know, push back against it. Absolutely. Um, And yeah, I mean, you know, we've seen the the vice president for academic staff, Matthew Klugman, um, has gone on record saying, you know, that staff have been shell-shocked and incredibly worried about the losses, um, as it could mean a heavier workload for those who remained, which we've seen already happen in 2020, which Mm. is only three years ago. So um, we're getting rid of this huge number of staff only three years on from the last round of redundancies. Um, You know, how are we... We as the union planning to help VU staff who do remain and are stuck with this, you know, extensive workload most likely. Well, I think one of the keys is is how, you know, active and energised the branch gets through the enterprise bargaining process. Like it's critical now for VU staff who may not be in the union to join the union because, you know, the the industrial relations landscape in Australia allows 
us as staff to take industrial action and use the power that we've got to, you know, pressure the employer by removing our labour or putting on bans and those sorts of things only when we're engaged in an enterprise agreement process and only members of the union can take that protected industrial action. So if you happen to be or you happen to know a VU staff member um, who's listening right now who isn't in the union, now is the time to head to the NTU website, hit the big red join button. Um, because I think it's, it's through that process of taking action together and and making those connections in the workplace and and, and um, feeling that the strength and the solidarity that we have together in the workplace after the agreement is signed, it's that kind of sense of collective resistance and solidarity that we have to build on to try and push back locally in in different areas to win those little gains, you know, by using tactics that might fall short of having industrial action but actually use the power of workers collectively united to sort of push back and insist on, on you know, we can't deal with this workload, we're united in this area, you know, you, managers, you have to find a different way. Um, so some of that, I guess, is also provisions that we're trying to fight for in the enterprise agreement. Um, obviously, pay rises given the current economic climate, but things such as, you know, workload committees with teeth, you know, actual mechanisms, actual caps on the endless magic pudding that academics have to dip into to, um, you know, to, to do all the things that are required of them as part of their, their role as well. So I guess that's a, a two-pronged process. Absolutely. Agreement and after. Uh, absolutely. And, you know, anyone who is listening and is interested in joining the NTEU, um, you can follow us on Instagram at VU underscore NTEU. And you can also follow the Twitter at NTEU VicUni. Uh, there's a lot of information on both of those platforms and um, regular updates. So definitely follow us on social media. Uh, thank you, Fleur, for joining us this morning. That's all we have time for, but we really appreciate you talking to us about this and we'd love to have you back as the fight continues as well thanks for having me and thank you so that was Fleur Taylor who is a staff member at Victoria University and the vice president for professional staff of VU's NTEU branch talking to us about the announcement where VU is going to make 300 full-time staff redundant if you or someone you care for is struggling with a mental illness or other disability and you need someone to talk to, you can call the Wellways Helpline. Wellways Helpline is a volunteer support and referral service that provides information to people experiencing mental health issues or other disabilities, as well as their family, friends and carers. We're here to talk if you are feeling socially isolated, seeking information about mental health or mental health services, or just need someone to talk to. As a peer-based service, everyone working at Wellways Helpline has a lived experience of mental health issues or disability. Wellways Helpline is a national service and operates Monday to Friday, 9am to 9pm, excluding public holidays. So if you're struggling yourself or are struggling to help someone else, please call Wellways Helpline on 1300 111 500. That's 1300 111 500. Wellways supports 3CR. 
Welcome back to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. We are now going to replay for you a um, conversation that Vivian Langford of 3CR's Climate Action Show had with Neeb, who abseiled off a bridge in Nam, Melbourne, during a nationwide action in the first week of July this year. In this interview, Neve describes the reasons for her action and the experience of going through the courts after her arrest. This conversation originally took place on 3rd of July, 2023. Blockade Australia have stopped the traffic in four major cities this week. They've drawn attention to the coal trains at Newcastle Port. This exported coal is obviously fueling climate chaos, but in Brisbane, Sydney and Melbourne, Climbers have been suspended over the container ports. They are not all young. One woman was 62. And they are pointing our attention to the consumerism that is also creating ecological collapse. I have Neve here. She abseiled off a bridge in Melbourne, blocking six lanes of traffic leading to the port. So welcome to the community radio, Neve. And Thanks for having me. Well, tell us, why did you do it? Yeah, so the system that we call Australia um, is fueling the climate crisis and this system is, you know, extracting and exploiting on this continent. Um, And the Port of Melbourne is a major bottleneck of this system. It's um, part of the economy that fuels this crisis and that, you know, the system runs off profit and money. Um, And so by blocking, you know, the six lanes road that goes in and out um, of Melbourne's container port, which is the largest container port in Australia. I effectively was stopping the system and halting the climate crisis for a second, like in that moment. And that's what we need to see on a mass scale if we're ever going to effectively create the change we need to see. Yeah. Well, I spent a long time yesterday watching the Blockade Australia people in all those cities on YouTube I think many people instinctively feel that our system is tearing our future apart and creating climate chaos and ecological collapse, but they can't think past the system. Is it unthinkable to you? It's not unthinkable. That's why I do it, because I know that, like, there is no other choice. We can't live under the system that is going to kill us all. The only way is to change the system. And, like, I don't have all the answers of what that system is going to look like. I'm just a 20-year-old. But people have been doing research on this for ages. There are ways we can come work together as a community to design the future that we need to see, um, one that doesn't exploit and extract and kill. Something I thought was very interesting in one of the comments, um, person said, power resides not only in governments and institutions, and they're the usual targets for activists, aren't they, you pester politicians and you demand things from banks and institutions but it says power resides in the movement of goods and resources via roads ports and rails and through disrupting these flows the system is challenged do you think the system is showing signs of challenge or are they just going to arrest you and and ignore you well by blocking by blocking six lanes of traffic, I was causing a disruption, which was like, therefore, you know, a stop in the system, um, like it like blocks the system up for a moment. And there is no way they can ignore that if it continuing continues to happen, which is what's been happening across the continent for this last week. Power does lie in these economic bottlenecks. 
you know, that's where we have the power to create the change, which is why that's what, why we've chosen to go after them and block them. I hope the message is not distorted in the transmission. You know how we've had such a lot of community discussion about Extinction Rebellion throwing paint at famous paintings or something. It's it's that distortion that people never say, why did you do it? What's your experience leading up to this, that this was a justifiable thing? Well, I think telling like a personal story, the fact that like, you know, this climate, the climate crisis has been something in my life since I was, you know, very little up within the news when I was turned 15 um, I started school striking for climate because that was the way I thought that you know I was going to create the change and I saw nothing come of that when I asked of people and so I think it's important to just like tell people that you know the the way we're taking action is the only way that's going to create effective change many of us have tried other ways and you know the climate crisis is the thing on our minds at the moment because it is the thing that it was going to kill us all. I'm glad it's on your mind because for so many people, they're really blocking their ears and not letting it get in. And I think that's right, that doing everything you can in the normal way, school striking, normal channels and all of that. So many people tell me they've done all of that. And so many people in the older age bracket tell me they really take inspiration from the young people. But I wonder if they'll support young people like you doing this much more daring much more dramatic action and also targeting the whole system the whole consumerist system profit making yeah it will be interesting to see but you know blockade australia is made up of young people and old people today we saw a 62 year old woman jump up on a container train in melbourne like blockade australia covers all demographics because the climate crisis is going to affect everyone what is your story in the the background of this? What is the main experience of climate change or reading about it that throbs away for you? To be honest, when I started school striking and I was like in high school, I was a 15-year-old and, you know, someone said, do you want to come and organise this school strike for the climate? Like I think it's really important. And I said yes and I started reading the news and it absolutely terrified me to like realize that we're facing all these tipping points that were going to cause complete and utter climate collapse and like kill human and non-human life and ecosystems and like everything we know and love about this planet and I think from that moment on it has driven me forward and like continuing to make sure that we are going to beat the climate crisis and this take taking that action yesterday by abseiling off that bridge was just a moment in knowing that the system is the cause of that climate, of the climate crisis, and that that's the thing that we need to stop if we're ever going to stop climate change. Maybe spell it out a bit more. I think a lot of people are very familiar with the coal port type protests, you know, stopping the coal trains in Newcastle. That's been going on for a long, long time. I've been to trials of that over the last decade, you know, people fought mm. for that. And you can see the direct connection to climate change there. But what about these container ports? They're just bringing white goods back and forth, aren't they? Things wrapped in plastic. So how does that impact on climate change? How do you connect those two to really persuade the public? Yeah, so like container ports are economic bottlenecks of the system. So they're like where major thoroughfares of goods and imports and exports of the system go through. And like, you know, the import-export system is responsible for a huge amount of our emissions going into climate change, but they're also super powerful centres at play in the economy of the system and in the institutions 
that like run the system. Those institutions and corporations and the government rely on these big like economic bottlenecks to make the system function and without them the system doesn't function. I think it's also the growth that's always growing, isn't it? Like Melbourne Port yeah. is edged to put, get ever bigger ships in there. Yes. And all around the world this is happening. Um, there's nobody saying there's a finite point here. It's infinite profit available and infinite extraction to get it. Yeah, infinite growth, infinite profit. Like it's something mm. that we know is never going to work and is always going to fuel the climate crisis, but something the system is never going to give up. Well, I appreciate your honesty saying you don't have all the answers because I don't either and, and I interview lots and lots of people but it's like the blind men describing the camel, you know, each describes yeah. the corner, their little niche of it. There has to be some spanner in the works, even just to stop. It's just like I'm putting a spanner in this machine, sabotaging this machine for the moment to give you time to think. Yeah. You know? I yes, thought COVID definitely. would give us time to think but I don't think it was long enough. Tell us about you were arrested, I think. did Is that going to, um, how did that go? Yes, yeah, so I was arrested yesterday post-abcell post and um, I'm all done with court. court. I finished with court yesterday, um, got my outcome and got a one-month good behaviour bond. Um, so I'm pretty much off. Um, all in yeah. one day? All in one day I spent nine hours in small cell rooms getting wandered around from room to room waiting to go see the magistrate um but yes made it through and have finalized my case and so yeah what did the magistrate say um the magistrate told me that you know the climate crisis is important but i should also think about my future and I didn't say anything in return, but I think if I could have, I would have said I don't have a future due to the climate crisis and it's not going to deter me from taking the effective action that needs to happen. Thanks very much, Neeb. Thanks for talking to us. That was Neeb speaking to Vivian Langford on 3CR's Climate Action Show and about the abseiling off a bridge in Nam Melbourne as part of a nationwide action in the first week of July. You can listen to the Climate Action Show on Mondays from 5 till 6pm and access all episodes of the show at 3cr.org.au slash climate action. Little Sims is a UK rapper who is going to be in Melbourne tomorrow night playing a show at MCA, which is super exciting. So to celebrate, we're going to play a track from her 2021 album called Woman. Women got the melanin dripping, Nella Wendy, city girl living in the back, looking like fire, chili pepper. You rub a girl tougher than imperial leather. He was getting bitter while she was getting better. Diamonds are forever. Miss Sierra Leone looking like a gem, works hard in the week, party on the weekend. Know you wanna live with no one watching how you spend. Got a thing for the finer things and the finer men. <laughs> Miss Tanzania, she a do or die. Says she wanna know more about the Sukuma tribe. We 
hit the zoo Once wasn't enough Got an ocean full of knowledge You could scuba dive Miss Ethiopia can play so jazzy They sit you down to school You want Selassie Tell them you're not in without a woman No Woman to woman I just wanna see you glow Tell them what's up Repping for your country, sun kissing your brown skin, looking like money. Says she focusing on being an accountant. When you have beauty and brains, they find it astounding. Why she been getting it on her own, nigga? Self-made, ain't nobody doing gold, nigga. Now, Miss India always speaks with her chest. Got respect from her people, cause she leads them the best. Hmm, real life queen in the flesh. Know the crown get heavy, still the bees on your head. Brooklyn ladies know you hustle on the daily Innovative just like Donna Summer in the 80s Your time is seeing you glow now Intelligence and elegance, show them how Miss Jamaica understand food for the soul She get up in the kitchen or she throw down Ain't nothing without a woman, no Woman to woman, I just wanna see you glow Tell them what's up Gonna go, calm with it, never let the marijuana fail. Though a sucker for the romance, take you to the homeland. One way she ain't coming back, nah. All I see is black stars, and I friggin' love it, yeah, yeah. Time's up, tell the people that we coming, yeah, yeah. Done being in the shadow, going public, yeah, yeah. Don't know how to bear it, how to stomach, yeah, yeah. Hand over the shit and let us run it, yeah, yeah. All we know is looking clueless, all they know is stairs there. Ain't nothing without a woman, no. Woman to woman, I just wanna see you glow, glow, glow. I love how you go from zero to 100 and leave the dust behind. You've got this and lead them with your life. You woman got to woman, this I just wanna see you glow. Tell them what's up. You know what I mean? That was Woman by Little Sims. The Therapeutic Goods Administration has amended the prescribing and dispensing restrictions on medical abortion. Doctors were required to undergo additional training and pharmacists were required to register as providers. From August this year, these requirements will be removed. Laura Riccardi is the Sexual and Reproductive Health Lead at Women's Health in the Southeast, a health promotion agency working to prevent violence against women, promote gender equality, and improve sexual and reproductive health. 
She has a Master of Public Health and prior to working in the sexual and reproductive health sector, Laura worked in alcohol and other drug research. We're thrilled to welcome Laura this morning to talk us through the TGA's amendments. Thanks for joining us, Laura. Thanks for having me, Ivka. So the TGA has amended the prescribing and dispensing restrictions on medical abortion, which is a significant step towards improving access to termination in Australia. Are you able to talk us through what this change entails and what it means for people who need to access abortion? Yeah, absolutely. So firstly, um, for listeners who are unfamiliar, uh, medical abortion is one of two kinds of abortion that you can access in Australia, um, the other being surgical abortion performed usually um, in a day surgery under light sedation or general anaesthetic, usually up to uh, 12 weeks, but sometimes um, in the second trimester too. Uh, medical abortion, on the other hand, is where the doctor prescribes two medications, usually taken 36 hours apart, um, which essentially induce a medical miscarriage in order to terminate the pregnancy. Um, and the benefit of this is that it can be taken in the comfort of your own home. Um, however, it is only available up to nine weeks gestation in Australia. Now, until very recently, as you noted, um, doctors and pharmacists needed to complete additional training um, in order to be permitted to prescribe and dispense those medications for medical abortion. Um, but this has changed because the uh, the TGA, which is the peak government authority responsible for regulating um, medicine in Australia, recently accepted an application um, from a not-for-profit uh, pharmaceutical company, MS Health, um, to deregulate medical abortion. And what this means is that um, that additional training um, that doctors and pharmacists previously needed to undertake in order to certify them to prescribe and dispense those medications um, is, is no longer required. It's not necessary anymore. Um, and as of the, the 1st of August, um, they will be able to um, prescribe and dispense medical abortion um, as part of their regular practice. Um, the hope is that this will enable increased access to medical abortion. Um, so up until now, only 10% of GPs had completed the necessary training, um, but effectively this has now expanded the workforce that has the capacity to provide um, medical abortion. Um, and for nurse practitioners in Victoria, this is particularly exciting news because they may also be eligible um, to prescribe. Why is it um, just nurses in Victoria that have that additional benefit of this amendment? Yeah, so um, the legislation determining who can um, prescribe medical abortion varies by state and territory. Mm. So um, I believe this is still emerging, but my understanding is that nurse practitioners in Victoria and South Australia within the existing legislative framework may be eligible to prescribe um, medical abortion. And this is really a, a huge step forward because these highly skilled and qualified health professionals are already usually part of the process of follow-up and, and care for um, women and gender-diverse people who are seeking an abortion. Um, they 
this will enable them to work to the full scope of their practice, essentially. They're they're more than um, capable of delivering medical abortion um, and this will expand the number of practitioners who are eligible to do so and then in turn expand um, access for abortion seekers in states like Victoria and South Australia. Mm, Totally. And I think when we're talking about, you know, increased access to abortion, another benefit of the medical option is that it is often a more cost-effective option, which can be a huge barrier to people needing to access abortion. Absolutely. I think that is um, arguably the most significant barrier is cost. Mm. Um, So the majority of abortions um, in Australia are currently performed by private providers, which means that there's a significant out-of-pocket cost um, for those abortion seekers. So um, for medical abortions, this often involves um, spending on um, blood tests or dating scans or ultrasounds where required um, to confirm the pregnancy and the gestational age. Um, The patient may also need to pay for the consultation with the doctor um, as well as the medication. So the average medical abortion will cost between two dollars and $400. However, the um, the cost for women and, and um, people with a uterus living in remote or regional communities are um, magnified because they will likely have to travel a considerable distance um, in order to locate a doctor or pharmacist that um, previously was registered and qualified as a provider and that stocks the medication, MS2-STEP, um, which is um, methogristone and misoprostol, um, and of course, living in a smaller community can also make it harder to sort of maintain privacy in, in reproductive decision making. Um, I think, though, those cost factors are also uh, magnified for some of the most marginalised in our community, being newly arrived migrants, uh, refugees, and international students um, who face major structural barriers um, and cost barriers to abortion. Mm, definitely. You're, we've kind of just touched on it with cost being another barrier as well as these um, administration steps that will be removed thanks to these amendments. But can you talk us through some other barriers that people face seeking abortion? Because, you know, like I said, these changes are a huge step into increasing access, but there are still significant barriers there. Absolutely. Um, So I think stigma continues to be a barrier, despite the fact that abortion is widely supported in Australia. Um, And, you know, the fact that it's a a legal um, and commonplace and safe procedure that, you know, at least one in four women and people with a uterus will um, obtain an abortion in their lifetime in Australia there does continue to be some stigma and unfortunately some um, shame around abortion. And I think that um, this is largely what was behind the initial, I think, over-regulation of medical abortion. Um, I think another challenge is uh, conscientious objection, despite the fact that the majority of Australians and indeed the majority of health practitioners support abortion, Um, doctors and other health workers are protected by law in their right to refuse to perform an abortion based on religious or moral reasons. 
Um, however, those practitioners are also obligated to refer patients who are seeking an abortion to someone who will provide that service if they won't. Um, and I think that while conscientious objectors are a very small minority of healthcare practitioners, um, it can be a barrier if someone is seeking an abortion and then encounters that resistance in the form of conscientious objector. Um, so if any listeners are looking for a medical abortion or looking for an abortion and are, are wanting to um, potentially avoid um, encountering that objection in their consultation, I strongly recommend that they contact 1-800-MY-OPTIONS. Um, it's a, a non-judgmental, um, non-directive um, phone service that can um, direct you to your local provider. Mm, thank you for sharing that resource. I think it can be such a you know vulnerable time and if you are already you know facing potential stigma and all of these cost barriers and all of this worry like having a safe space that you can contact so that you're not um, in fear of any judgment is amazing. Absolutely and I think particularly because medical abortion is so time sensitive that often um, women and pregnant people won't find out that they're pregnant until you know, usually six weeks of gestation, medical abortion is only available up until nine weeks, that really gives you a short window in order to locate a provider, um, undertake the necessary tests to confirm the pregnancy, um, obtain the scripts, uh, get the medication and um, complete the abortion. Mm. Uh, removing and prescribing, sorry, removing the prescribing and dispensive restrictions on medical abortion is an obvious win, but do you foresee challenges arising in implementing these changes and how can we go about combating those challenges? Yeah, absolutely. So I think that um, even though this is, as you say, a, a really critical win for the sexual and reproductive health sector um, in that doctors and pharmacists will no longer be required to undertake that additional training. I think that there will still be a, a need to build practitioners' knowledge and skills and confidence to prescribe and dispense those abortions. Um, the the pre-service medical curriculum for doctors and pharmacists um, and nurse practitioners does not spend a great deal of time preparing um, healthcare practitioners to provide um, that sort of accessible care. Um, and although I think this reform goes a really long way to expanding the reproductive health workforce, we need to ensure that those practitioners um, are supported in, in having the competence and the knowledge and skills um, to provide that high-quality care. And there's a number of... Um, programs and networks that exist to support those prospective providers. I really encourage um, any doctors, pharmacists or nurse practitioners who are interested in, in becoming a provider to reach out to the Royal Women's Clinical Champions Project, um, to 1-800-MY-OPTIONS that I mentioned earlier, um, or to their local Victorian Women's Health Service like Women's Health in the South East. Mm, thanks. That is unfortunately all we have time for this morning, but thank you so much for joining us, Laura. Thank you for having me. That was Laura Riccardi from the Sexual and Reproductive Health Lead 
at Women's Health in the South East, talking us through the TJ's amendments of the prescribing and dispensing restrictions on medical abortion. If you'd like to find out more about Women's Health in the South East, head to whise.org.au. 3CR is about community, and we welcome your participation at the station. 3CR is open to a wide diversity of volunteers and is a great way to connect with Melbourne's activist community. Have you ever thought about volunteering, doing a reception shift, getting a program on air, training in radio skills, or contributing to one of the station's committees? There are many ways to be involved at 3CR. To find out more, go to 3cr.org.au and get in touch. Serrated tussock is an noxious weed that has impacted our farmlands and environment across Victoria. Similar in appearance to many native tussock grasses, serrated tussock may go unnoticed in both pastures and native grasslands for many years. Victorian Serrated Tussock Working Party has assisted hundreds of landholders to control this noxious weed and they can assist you by offering a wide range of information and management options for controlling this weed of national significance. Visit serratedtussock.com for more information. A 3CR supporter. You're on 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. New research led by UNSW Sydney in partnership with Monash University examines the mental health impacts of COVID-19 related stresses on women of refugee backgrounds living in Australia. The study published in the PLOS Global Public Health uh, compared these women to Australian-born women. One of the authors, Professor Jane Fisher, is a clinical psychologist and Finkel Professor of Global Health and Women's Health in the School of Public Health and Preventative Medicine at Monash University. She joins us on the show this morning to talk about the study and its findings. Welcome to Tuesday Breakfast, Jane. Thank you for having me. So can you start by just giving our listeners a little bit of a background about the study, who was involved and how was the data collected? So the study began six years ago. Uh, women were asked if they were willing to participate and we saw two groups of women uh, in antenatal clinics. One was women from conflict-affected backgrounds in the Middle East, in uh, Sri Lanka, and uh, the other was from Australian-born women. And they've generously continued to participate now uh, for the last six years, telling us about their life experiences, the things that trouble them, the things that cause them problems. And we've been able to compare the Australian-born and the women from refugee-like backgrounds. This particular study was able to look at the impacts of the pandemic and how these differentiated the two groups. It's a really interesting study. Uh, You know, how do the unique experiences of refugee women impact their experience of COVID-19? Well, I think uh, their living situations were already more difficult. So they're more likely to be living in insecure housing. They're more likely to be living in crowded circumstances, not to have access to predictable incomes. So for many of them, their financial situations became uh, very worrying, that they either lost their jobs or their family income was, was lost or diminished. Having to have their children at home and homeschooled was made difficult because they often didn't have access to the computers that were essential to maintain a link with a a school. 
uh, and the children, that they were having to teach their children things that they uh, hadn't necessarily learnt themselves or had an opportunity to learn at school. So the language difficulties became more difficult. Uh, and I think the authoritarian lockdown rules, uh, which certainly we experienced in Victoria and to a lesser extent in New South Wales, were really alarming for people who'd come from uh, politically controlling environments where they had not felt free to uh, move around, to live, live lives in a, in a usual way. So it was that combination of factors that really contributed to high distress among women from these backgrounds made a little bit worse because information was not made available in multiple languages until well into the pandemic. So people were being expected to remain at home or socially distance or wear masks or abide by various rules, but they weren't being given that information in their own language. Yeah, I mean, it does make sense, you know, that the intersections of gender and your living circumstance and your socioeconomic level and, you know, specific trauma that you may have experienced in your life would, uh, you know, cause a lot of different uh, reactions and experiences when something as big and as kind of all-consuming as a pandemic happens. Um Previous research has found that the pandemic brought up really specific trauma for refugee women. Could you tell us about some of the examples of these kinds of trauma triggers for this particular group? Well, I think um, in places where the pandemic restrictions were policed, and they were in certain places where you know, there were police in the streets, there were police on horseback riding in the streets, and indeed um, people had military personnel or police personnel knocking at the door to make sure they were abiding by restrictions. These were extremely alarming for people who'd come from conflict-affected backgrounds and um, made especially frightening when they couldn't uh, necessarily understand that this was a civil process. It wasn't that they were being accused of criminal activities. It was checking whether... Uh, the restrictions were being observed. And, of course, some people from these backgrounds felt that they were unfairly targeted uh, and that, that police or other civil authorities were paying particular attention to them. Uh, so, so I think those were the things that really triggered great distress. Yeah, I think that's uh, a good point, you know, there's racism is prevalent in society at the best of times, let alone, you know, during something like a pandemic. So it does make sense that they did feel um, a bit more targeted. Um, one of the findings of this research was that there is a substantial group of childbearing age women from conflict affected settings who have unique needs and require intervention and support. Can you tell us a bit more about this? Well, this was a study particularly of childbearing women. So they were asked to join the study when they were pregnant and attending antenatal clinics at big hospitals in Melbourne or in Sydney. Uh, so they were women going through that uh, experience of being pregnant, giving birth, looking after a baby, and their children are now uh, of an age to begin starting school. Um, so what we learned is that giving birth in a new country is particularly difficult and it brings back to mind all that they've lost. Uh, 
So for most women in their countries of origin, they would have had access to their mothers, sisters, aunts, and would have had that um, support around them. And they've often had to leave that behind. And so they come to give birth in Australia and rely much more on their partner than they would have done traditionally and also have to use professional services they're not accustomed to using, which require navigation. Uh, so for people to understand what maternity services provide, what it is they're being expected to do, how they join the Maternal Child and Family Health Centre for uh, postnatal care, all of this requires new knowledge, uh, it requires communication skills that they might not feel they have. Often interpreter services are not as readily available. And so it does lead to withdrawal from professional care and often trying to manage their lives on their own at home without the kind of support that might be available to them. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we talk often on this show about how difficult uh, the medical system and the birthing system is to navigate for those of us who do speak the language and who are comfortable here. Um, so I can't imagine how much harder it would be for someone who may not be, you know, accustomed to the way things are and may not, you know, have the, the same language skills as well. Um you know, you've applied for funding to extend this study. Uh, can you tell us what's next for your research and what you're hoping to learn? Thank you, yes. This is one of the largest studies of uh, women from refugee-like backgrounds in the world. And our study is unique in that at the same time, we asked a group of Australian-born women to join the study. And we've, um, you know, more than 80% of them have continued to contribute data over this six-year period. So we feel this is really a unique resource internationally and that we, we think there's great value in being able to follow what these women's experiences are like as they've lived in Australia for longer and they've had more opportunity to learn about the Australian health and education and uh, social protection system, but also it provides an opportunity to follow their children and learn a bit more specifically in real time what their children's specific needs are and therefore how the needs of both parents and children can be better met if they're well informed by uh, this kind of research. Yeah, you're right. This is It is a really unique uh, study and, um, you know, shining a light on something that is not really talked about much at all. Uh, you touched a little bit earlier on the lack of community support for a lot of refugee women. Um, you know, how will this research help us as a community better support refugee women? Well, I think if we have uh, an opportunity to read and research like this about the extent of their needs, and um, often the refugee resettlement services are available for the first few months after someone arrives. But I think what we're finding is they actually have significantly greater needs and specific needs for years. And therefore that there is a benefit to continuing to provide uh, places in which women can meet others, where they can use their own language and capabilities where they can have access to 
practical advice, practical support and social support, that those are going to have value in the long term. So um, I, I think it, it's a big argument that refugee resettlement services shouldn't um, finish after a few months. They should be continued. Absolutely. I think continuous support is key to, um, you know, improved mental health and just feeling a part of a community that they're, they're new to as well. Um, and I also just believe that, you know, benefiting um, vulnerable groups like this just benefits society as a whole as well. It, you're absolutely right. And what we've learned from our participants is they want to contribute they want to uh, participate meaningfully. They want to join the economy. Uh, they, they want to participate in voluntary work, uh, including at their kids' schools. And uh, I think w we shouldn't see them as a group who are placing demands on common resources. They're people who want to contribute, but they do have quite sustained um, specific needs. No, I think that's that's a really great point there. Um, yeah, I think we do often make the mistake in society of seeing them as uh, people who place demands, whereas they should be seen as the members of society that they are and, you know, be allowed to contribute just like everybody else. Absolutely. Very well put. Where can listeners read the report and learn more? Uh, if they go to the University of New South Wales uh, website, there is a very good summary of this study and a link to the paper uh, on the, uh, I think it's called Newsroom. So if they type in University of New South Wales Newsroom, there is a very good summary of the article and a link to the paper. Amazing. We will also link to that in our show notes later today. Jane, that's all we have time for, but thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you for having me. So that was Professor Jane Fisher talking to us about a recent study into the mental health impacts of COVID-19 related stresses on women of refugee backgrounds living in Australia. Serrated tussock is a noxious weed that has impacted our farmlands and environment across Victoria. Similar in appearance to many native tussock grasses, serrated tussock may go unnoticed in both pastures and native grassland for many years. Victorian Serrated Tussock Working Party has assisted hundreds of landholders to control this noxious weed and they can assist you by offering a wide range of information and management options for controlling this weed of national significance. Visit serratedtussock.com for more information. A 3CR supporter. Welcome back to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. We are going to end our show today by playing you some tracks from um, just a small handful of some of our favourite non-binary musicians. This is in honour of International Non-Binary People's Day, which was on the 14th of July. We're going to start with one of my favourite uh, non-binary artists, Dua Sali, who is a Sudanese-American singer and actor based in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Dua's family fled uh, the war when Dua was only five years old in Sudan and moved to America. You may recognise them from their role as Cal on Sex Education. This is their song Sugar Mama from their 2019 EP Noor. She wanna be my savior But daddy always warns about my family's behavior She wanted 
is about my flavor Those chocolate coated layers She looks me up or down Her pussy melting like a glacier Bodacious belly flopper Her daddy flies a chopper She talks about her charities And work he has to offer She dining, eating lobster Gold accents on her romper Her hand soaked in that metal ball Absorbing all that copper Shower caps and faucets Water in her socket Not used to girls with stringy hair I like them in a bonnet Super says not flossy Skin not gleaming glossy Slather soupy liquid on your legs Because it's frosty Persistent halitosis Perplexing braggadocious Clunky chunky clatter Coupled with that new explosive Critters always jibber jabber About her candy coaxing Ditties kitty litty Wild kitten smell like sausage That's nasty, that's gross All them pineapples are hoes That's nasty, that's gross Why them pineapples are hoes That's nasty, that's gross Why them pineapples are hoes So that was Sugar Mama by Duas Ali. The next track we're going to play is by Muna. Muna is an American indie pop band consisting of Katie Gavin, Josette Maskin and Naomi McPherson. This song, Who, is from their 2019 album, Saves the World. I never thought you knew what love was Until I heard you sing a love song With the way that you treat me I had to reach my own conclusions Oh, I I thought your heart was stone I thought you never let your feelings show So who
You're listening to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. That was Who by Muna. We're playing you some songs by our favourite non-binary artists in celebration of International Non-Binary People's Day, which was the 14th of July. This next song is by Jen Cloa, a songwriter and performer living on unceded Wurundjeri land in Nam. This song, My Witch, is from their latest album, I Am The River, The River Is Me, which was released this year. If you want to be my witch, lay it on me, be the ride you hitch when you hit that perfect pitch. I wanna be, wanna be that switch Yeah, you gonna make me sweat Give me what you got, what you wanna get Pull me in and hold me down Show me with a look what you gonna do now Honey, that ain't no shame And getting what you want, gotta give it a name It's more than a feeling Baby, won't you take it slow I don't wanna miss any part of this
You're on 3CR Tuesday Breakfast, and that was My Witch by Jen Claw. We're going to play your final song as a part of our International Non-Binary People's Day music special. This is Sweet Tsunami Symphony by Moju. Uh, Moju is an ARIA Award-nominated Australian musician. Their father is Filipino, and their mother is of Wiradjuri and European heritage. This track is from their 2012 EP, Moju Juju.
and that was Moju with our Sweet Tsunami Symphony. That brings us to the end of our show this morning. Quick recap on what we had on the show today. We started off with an interview with Fleur Taylor, who is the Vice President for Professional Staff at uh, NTEU's VU branch, talking to us about VU's recent recent announcement to give redundancies to 300 full-time staff members. We then heard a, a replay from Blockade Australia, um, a conversation that Vivian Langford of 3CR's Climate Action Show had with Neeb, who abseiled off a bridge in Melbourne during a nationwide action in the first week of July 2023. We were then joined by Laura from Women's Health in the South East to talk about a recent amendment by the Therapeutic Goods Administration to the prescribing and dispensing restrictions on medical abortion, which will significantly increase access to that service. We then spoke with Monash University Professor Jane Fisher, who is an author of a new study that examines the mental health impacts of COVID-19 related stresses on women of refugee backgrounds living in Australia. We ended our show just then with a music special where we played some of our favourite tracks by non-binary artists in honour of International Non-Binary People's Day on the 14th of July. That brings us to the end of our show. Uh, Stay tuned for breakfast all through the week at 7am. And as always, Accent of Women is coming up next. Australia's energy market is broken. Right, but Co-Power gives you better energy? Nope, no retailer can control where the electrons they buy off the grid come from. But as a Co-Power member, you can vote on where 100% of revenue goes. So instead of corporate profit, your energy bill builds the world you want to be a part of. That's cool. Learn more about the solidarity economy and Co-Power today and take the power back. Victorian energy fact sheets and basic plan information documents are available at cooperativepower.org.au. For clear advice on the right plan for you, contact us on 03 9068 6036. A 3CR supporter. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.